Today on Something You Should Know, you waste a lot of time on email. More than you think. So I've got some ways to cut down on all that wasted time. Also, want to look younger? Scientists who study aging have a message. If people only knew how little they have to do to affect major change in the way they're going to age years and decades from now. Also, we all have the ability to be a leader. It's not just about being the boss or having power. What makes a great leader? I'm talking about your ability as a person to do two things really well. How well do you as an individual influence outcomes and inspire others, right? That's what I'm talking about. And whether you can barely boil water or you're a gourmet cook, I've got some kitchen secrets that will transform your cooking. All this today on Something You Should Know. Something You Should Know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, and welcome to our weekend episode of Something You Should Know. And I want to start today by talking about email, because you probably spend a lot of time on email, probably waste a lot of time with email. So here's some advice, some expert advice that will help you cut down on the amount of time you spend on email. And it's from a guy named James Hamblin from TheAtlantic.com. And he claims these things helped him uh, cut down on the time he spent on email in half. And first, eliminate the sign-off. There's no need to write, you know, sincerely, best, cheers, or any of the other farewells. There's no need for it. And you can even skip your name in some cases uh, because the email address makes it pretty clear who the email is from, so it's somewhat redundant to sign the email. It's really kind of a holdover from the handwritten note or the handwritten letter. Same thing with the greeting. You don't really need to say, Dear Bob, because you sent the email to Bob, and Bob's the only guy that got the email, and so you could eliminate that as well. Three sentences or fewer is his advice. The crux of any email usually doesn't need more than three sentences. If what you're sending is more than three sentences, you should probably consider calling the person instead. Check your email only two or three times a day. I don't know if I could do that. But he says it's not that hard. And in fact, the average American worker wastes 30 seconds every time they check their inbox. So if you think about all the times you check your inbox in a day, multiply that by 30 seconds and you'll see how many minutes a day you're really wasting. He says even if you think your job doesn't allow you to check your inbox that infrequently... Give it a try, or cut down at least some. But if you give it a try, he says you'll be surprised how easy it is to get used to in time. And that is something you should know. Since aging is inevitable, you'd probably like to at least do it well. But how much control do you have over how you age? Maybe you think it's genetic, or maybe you think you have to live by some strict set of rules to slow down the aging process. Well, Margaret Pressler is a reporter for the Washington Post, and she decided to really dive into this subject. The results of her research are in her book called Cheat the Clock, and I think you'll be surprised and, and maybe encouraged by what she discovered about how much control we have over how we individually age. 
So, Margaret, it's, it's kind of interesting. Explain why you decided to investigate this in the first place. Um, very quickly, this actually came from a personal experience. I um, am married to a man who is 17 years older than me, and he looks the same age as me. It is, he is one of these people who just doesn't age. And I am a reporter for the Washington Post, so I took that as, a, as an opportunity to go ask some top experts, why does my husband look like this, and what explains that? I fully explain, expected that they would come back and say it was genetics, and every one of them came back and said it's not genetics, it's what he does. And I've always been interested in health and nutrition, and this started a couple of years of, of looking at all of the science on aging, and I just found you know, incredible information that people really could benefit from. Well, it's, you know, it's always kind of fascinated me, well, the first time it fascinated me, was going to high school reunions and seeing oh, how yeah. time is so kind to some people, seemingly, and so cruel to other people. But your point is, perhaps it's not just time, it's, it's what goes on in that time. Oh, there's no question. And, and one of the best ways to look at that is studies that have been done in Scandinavia. They do a great job of tracking twins. They keep a twin registry. And there have been lots of uh, research studies done tracking those twins, especially identical twins. And identical twins born the same, you know, with the same genetic imprint, the same household. But if they were then grew up to live very different lifestyles, um, food, exercise, sleep, stress, you see dramatically different outcomes in identical twins even. So it's not just luck of the draw, it's, it's what you do. And isn't, it, ba- isn't it basically true, though, that it's, it's kind of what everyone's heard, that if you lead a healthy life, eat right, exercise, that, that that's basically the prescription, or no? is it more than that? You know, there's no question that, you know, the old mom's advice is good advice. I think what's different about what I've got in the book is that what, what science has really discovered, because there's so much more technology going into the studying of aging now and the processes that go into, into their participating in the process of aging, scientists really understand how it's happening at the cellular level. They're un, they really know now, okay, these are the things inside your body that are causing aging that, that we think of outwardly as the, the things that we see as aging, wrinkles or you know, dementia later in life or whatever it may be. And what is really now clear is how these processes start when we're very young in an invisible way inside our cells, and that even those processes, those infinitesimal processes, are affected by even very small decisions we make day in and day out throughout our lives. So the hopeful message here is that, yeah, you, you know, yes, eating well, all of that stuff is good, but you don't have to do as much as people think. Oh, that's good news. Yes, it is good news. And that is, comes, that is straight from science. And I don't think I spoke to a single aging researcher who didn't say, with some sense of frustration, if people only knew how little they have to do to affect major change in the way they're going to age years and decades from now. So specifically what? Okay, so for example, if you want to look at uh, nutrition is, is obviously the low-hanging fruit. Nutrition is great, but it doesn't mean you need to overhaul your diet. There are certain things that, that you can do just on a daily basis that are easy. And, and I'm talking about starting by eating one more serving of fruit a day. The government says eat five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. A lot of people don't even get close to that. Does that mean that you shouldn't even try? Like if you know you're not going to eat five servings of fruits and vegetables, should you not even try? No. In fact, just eating one or two apples a day can have a huge impact on your blood pressure. 
There are chemicals, um, phytochemicals in fruits and vegetables that have a very positive effect on our cells. They help uh, reduce oxidative stress, which we've all heard of free radicals. Um, but if you're getting these particular chemicals in your from plants, um, you know, phytochemicals, I'm going to use that word because they are really healthy chemicals that as a species we developed over the millennia eating these kinds of foods and our body adapted to, um, to use those chemicals in a beneficial way. And apples, for example, have um, apples. Watermelon is another one that have a very beneficial phytochemicals in them that affect the, um, the suppleness of your cardiovascular system. So in addition to diet, what else is there? Okay, so there's uh, obviously exercise, but again, you don't need to go join the gym and you don't need to look hot in a bikini. You can affect a big change in the way you age with just a little bit of exercise. And the, the magic number is 10 minutes a day. And just about anybody can do a 10-minute walk a day, don't you think? Right? Yeah, that's 10 minutes is not that long. And the difference in when they look at, at epidemiological studies, so long-term studies following populations, the difference between people who have just walked 10 minutes a day versus people who haven't is dramatic in terms of, of um, the, the strength and dementia and overall illness, death from all causes. It's dramatic. So it goes up from there. So, you know, you benefit from that point on. But, but really that is t- 10 minutes, and there are lots of scientists who are looking at different um, aspects of why that is. Immune cells start flowing into your system from your, from your marrow after just 10 minutes of walking. Your brain cells start, you start generating new brain cells if you walk a mile a day. So there are huge benefits to just small amounts of getting moving. And, and, and of course, then it builds on itself. This is what my husband has done. He started very small um, and has shown dramatic, dramatic effects in how healthy he feels and looks over the years, from starting very small, with almost nothing, five minutes a day. Historically, the advice has been 30 minutes a day, three, at least three times a week, not 10 minutes a day, which, you know, 30 minutes is a, a reason to say no. And, Mike, that would be ideal. Of course, it would be great if everybody would do that. But you have to think of it a little bit like your body is a little bit like a bank account. Like if you, you know, if you could discipline yourself to put $10 a day in your bank account, then after 10 days, you've got $100. But if you can only put a dollar a day after 10 days, you've still got $10. You may not have 100, but you've got 10. And it's better than nothing, right? So if you figure you use that money at the end of that 10 days to buy gas for your car, so see how far you can go. You've got $100. You can drive, what, 500 miles maybe, depending on your car. If you've got $10, you can drive, you know, 30, 40, 50 miles. That's still farther than you could go otherwise. And your, your health is the same way. You nurture it bit by bit, and it is cumulative. And that is what, this, what, the, sci- what the current science has been able to do is pinpoint why that is. And that's really what my book explains. It's sort of an empowering, um, a very empowering message by understanding how it works inside your cells in ways you can't see. And that's what's tough. You know, if you can't see it, then is it really working? So with these studies, they have discovered through magnetic resonance imaging and epidemiological studies, so from looking inside the cell to looking at whole populations, they have been able to determine how even small things make a big difference. Stress is another big one. People, um, especially people who, who you know, don't, don't get involved in this kind of stuff, will always point to the, you know, the 110-year-old lady who smoked 
a pack a day and, right. and drank a quart of whiskey. And, I had uh, one of those. And so, see, it's all genetic, because look at her. She never lifted her finger and smoked and drank, and she lived to be 110. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up, because there, there is absolutely a genetic component to aging. What scientists now say is that, based on all of the, the current research, the best estimate now is that genetics is 25 to 30% of aging. And there are some people, and those people you're referring to are called superagers, and those people do have some lucky genetic cocktail that protects them from, they still haven't figured out what that is, it's going to be a very complicated thing to figure out if they ever can. But there are certain people who can live to, you know, 100, well into their 90s, you know, smoking or living just a not very healthy lifestyle and be fine. That's a very very small percentage of people. The thing is, it's so cool that you hear about them, right? You know, you hear about the great uncle so-and-so, but it does tend to run in families. So they know that, that there is a genetic component to that. The real issue is that for the vast majority of us, it's not going to help. So it's really, it's like a deck of cards and it's how you play it. So what else? Is there, is there any mental aspect to this? Absolutely. I I mentioned um, stress is another major component of aging. There have been some incredibly fascinating studies about how stress ages your cells in ways that have only just been able to be discovered. There are um, little caps at the ends of your chromosome called telomeres, which protect the genetic material every time your cell divides. But every time your cell divides, the telomeres get a little bit shorter. And in people who are chronically stressed, the telomeres get shorter much faster. So what does that mean? It means that once the telomeres are so short that it would compromise your genetic material, your cell dies. That cell that has that chromosome in it dies. The more cells, and we have cells that billions of cells die in our bodies every day, but that increases with age. Cell death and cell death and and sort of cells going into a resting phase increases with age and contributes to the conditions of aging. And that is a natural process, but stress hastens that. There are stress hormones that get into our cells and they mess with the way they work. Cortisol, you can feel it flowing through your body when you're stressed out. That is very harmful on a cellular level to the way you're aging. So being exposed to chronic long-term stress, absolutely. Well, you see it, you know, you see it in presidents, you know, after four years, they've clearly aged more than four years, right? But here's the good news. The good news is um, this is also something that you can do something about. Even if you can't remove the source of your stress. And, and often you can't, you know, if you're dealing with an aging parent or a chronically sick child or a very stressful job or financial woes, the stress is, it feels insurmountable. It's there all the time. However, what, what researchers have discovered is that it really, what really matters is how you deal with that stress. Different people with the same levels of stress, the same exposure to, to stress, can handle it very differently. And actually the way you handle the stress it helps alleviate the impact on the aging of your cells inside your body. And I'll give you a couple of examples. And, and this, you know, it seems, you know, sort of new agey, but meditation has been conclusively shown to have make concrete changes inside the brain that help it help the brain recover from and handle and not produce as many stress hormones and recover from it faster. So that's, um, that's one thing. Any kind of break you can give your brain from stressful thinking, through mindfulness, just paying, trying to teach yourself to pay closer attention to what you're doing at the moment, rather than worrying constantly about what's going on in the background. It is something you can train your brain to do just like a muscle. And 
that, that actually really does help. Intimacy helps um, alleviate stress, physical contact with other people, social engagement, and exercise all help you deal with stress. Of course, when you're stressed, sometimes it's hard to make you do those things, but if you can just pick one small thing, say, okay, I'm going to sit at my desk and I'm going to visualize myself out in nature. I'm going to do some deep breathing. It feels, may feel kind of pointless. In fact, it's not, and this is what the science has shown. What about the issue of, but it's too late, I'm too old? Ah, never too late, never too late. And there are, um, there are some wonderful studies in my book, um, human studies that, that look at people um, in, uh, you know, in the upper age brackets, you know, 60s to 80s, uh, that show some remarkable changes. There's a, um, an exercise um, physiologist, uh, researcher at McMaster University named Mark Tonopolsky, who's done some wonderful um, studies. And one of the things, for example, was he took a, a group of individuals, an older group and a younger group, and um, exercised them 45 minutes a day, three times a week um, for five months. And um, the, the difference in the, the mitochondria production in their muscles had reverted back almost to, in the older group, had reverted back to youthful levels. It was, it, it was, I mean, it was almost the, a complete reversal of the aging process. Um, another example is, and another example is a group of um, elderly subjects who were put on a Mediterranean diet for four weeks. And after four weeks, the level of senescent cells, and those are resting cell cells that have, have ceased you know, their normal active dividing life cycle, um, had dramatically decreased in their vascular system. And the percentage of cells that had shortening telomeres had also decreased dramatically just after four weeks on a Mediterranean diet. And these were people in their, I think, 70s and 80s. So it, absolutely, 100%, it is never too late. And the great thing is it doesn't take that much and it also, if you, if you engage in some of these activities with friends, you get the social benefit also, which also has been shown to have pretty dramatic anti-aging properties. One of the things I think that concerns people, and, and the reason that they often don't get too invested in this, is because, you know, the advice seems to change a lot. You know, what's good this week isn't good next week. And No, it's true. You're absolutely right. And, and there's also, there's so much... You know, there's so many conflicting quote-unquote programs out there. You know, there are so many books, and here I'm adding another book to the mix, um, but there, there are so many books, there are so many programs, there are so many celebrities and celebrity doctors all saying, do it this way, do it that way. But I think what's, what's really great, about, what's different about my book, I, I believe, is that there is a, there's a certain fundamental approach to health that everybody sort of always knows. It's what your mother told you. It's what the government says, and they eat, you know, five servings of fruits and vegetables a day that you just kind of know, yeah, 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 I know, I know that. That's going to make me healthy. It, it is almost so obvious and so out there that people don't really pay much attention to it. And I think people need, they need concrete examples of why something works, why it's going to work. And if I don't see the difference from eating an apple for a week, is it really making a difference? In fact, it is. And so you need to know why. You need to be armed with some information about, you know, what's going on inside your body so that you feel empowered. And quite frankly, you know, if you do something good for yourself, it makes you feel better about yourself, right? It makes you feel like you can do it. Yeah, well, I think everybody wants to look as good as they can and want to stay looking young as long as they can. And it's nice to know that maybe it's not as hard as people thought. Margaret Pressler, 
has been my guest. She is the author of the book Cheat the Clock. She is also a reporter for the Washington Post, and you will find a link to her book at Amazon in the show notes. There's no shortage of leadership gurus in the world, and so much of their advice tends to be business-oriented. It's for managers, bosses, corporate bigwigs, and the like. But we all have to be leaders at times in our lives. We lead our children. We lead others at work, even if we're not the CEO. So I want to talk about leadership on a more individual scale, less corporate although this certainly applies to leadership in the workplace as well. My guest is Courtney Lynch. She is a self-proclaimed leadership junkie, and she is co-author of a new best-selling book out called Spark, How to Lead Yourself and Others to Greater Success. Welcome, Courtney. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to talk about leadership. So I'm, I, I don't usually like to ask, start by asking people, you know, so tell me about yourself, but I think you have an interesting story here with your co-authors coming out of the military, and also I am going to ask you to tell me about yourself, so tell me about yourself. Sure, happy to do so. Well, yeah, I think the most important thing to know about me is I'm a leadership geek, but I also was an accidental leader. I'm someone that learned leadership, I guess, in a pretty non-traditional way. Uh, at 21 years of age, I made this interesting career choice to join the United States Marine Corps. And to give you perspective, I think maybe gender makes it a little bit more uh, interesting. Out of 180,000 Marines, uh, only about 1,000, 1,000 are female Marine Corps officers. So I had this very unique experience that not many people get learning to lead as a Marine Corps officer. So I grew up in the Marines. I'm an attorney. I worked in software. Yet all of these different things I've done in my career, the one common thread has been the leadership lessons that I learned firsthand in the military. Yet over the past 13, 14 years, I've been consulting with our nation and our world's leading organizations, uh, companies like Facebook and Google and Walmart and FedEx, helping them really understand how to leverage leadership skills and capabilities of their employees for greater success for the organization. So uh, I'm a leader. That's the best way to describe me with probably a unique background, yet it's all added up to being help, able to help others build their leadership skills. Well, you are quite a leadership smarty pants, aren't you? <laughs> it's what I love. So uh, <clears throat> the idea of the book and, and what your message is, is what in big, broad strokes here? The idea is that all of us have this ability to lead others well. It's just not a skill set that a lot of us have spent a lot of time developing, right? I've met so many great professionals, right? Amazing technical skills, advanced degrees, uh, very capable, very qualified, high intellects, right? Other smarty pants out there. Yet... Uh, what we often don't do, especially here in our American culture, is build leadership skills. Well, I think there's a sense that, you know, leaders are born, not made, and that either there are certain leadership-type people that, that are better leaders than others, but, but my guess is you don't agree with that. Well, you know, I think part and part of the fact I do, right? I think about, you know, there's been some really amazing studies. Uh, one of the best ones is out of the University of Minnesota, a longitudinal study of identical twins, where they really looked at that born versus made question. And that research, looking at other research, it kind of comes down about 70-30. 30% of our ability to lead is, is inherent at birth. Things like our IQ, things like maybe we lean towards extroversion. Uh, people tend to think extroverts are better leaders. Uh, charisma. Um, 
our uh, ability to uh, to influence and inspire, though, comes from truly our behaviors every day. And that's the extra 70%. What type of mindset do we have? What type of behaviors are we demonstrating? So yes, some things fixed at birth, but the born with it piece, I think falls away when you realize the majority of our ability to lead is based on the choices we make every day about how we're showing up and what behaviors we're demonstrating. But a lot of uh, introverts, for example, might have real trouble with some of those behaviors. It's hard to, you know, be charming and, and extroverted when you're not naturally. See, I don't think charm and extrovert didn't actually have much to do with leadership, right? I think they're just a small piece. I think we're actually in the era of the introvert, uh, that great book, Quiet, that uh, commanded a lot of attention not too long ago. And a lot of the research is moving towards with the, the nature of technology today. Uh, again, the era of the introvert is upon us. And I think the type of behaviors I'm talking about are things around your ability to be accountable, your ability to have a sense of service towards others, your ability to credibly meet and exceed standards. They transcend personality types versus, you know, extroversion or introversion. I think they're more behaviors that anyone, whether you're social and outgoing or more quieted, quiet and prefer to be on your own, can, can truly leverage to be effective. Well, explain those behaviors in like real people terms, because they can sound a bit platitude-y um, when you say exceed standards and all that. It sounds kind of like report card stuff. But what does it mean in day to day? How do people do this? Well, how do people do credibility, right? You're talking about exceed standards. The interesting thing about credibility is it's not us that evaluates our credibility. Credibility is in the eye of the beholder, uh, meaning other people are always racking and stacking you, right? People are always evaluating you, trying to decide, can I trust this person? Do they know what they're talking about? Are they going to be able to get the job done? That's real world happening to us all the time, anytime we're interacting with another human being. So being credible means really understanding what does success look like in this organization? What are the standards? People that are doing well here, people that are contributing at uh, highest levels, what what are they doing? How are they understanding success? And, and how are they actually taking steps to meet and exceed those standards? And the interesting thing is, is, you know, we can have standards in our job, right? We have a boss who, who tells us what needs to be done. That's one opportunity to be credible, right? Meeting and exceeding what we're asked to do. But a lot of our credibility comes from our ability to read the circumstances and take some initiative uh, in the areas sometimes we don't necessarily agree with or we're not excited about taking action there. But those could be the things that actually help us be as credible as possible in an organization. I think a lot of people believe, though, and, and live the idea that if you show up and you do your job and you do it well, everything else takes care of itself. I think that that's where credibility comes from, yet I think there's a bit more to it, right? I think there's this dynamic of are you someone that naturally, through how you engage with other people, has the ability to influence? And I think, again, we were talking earlier about accountability. When problems happen, uh, so you show up, you're doing your job, but something inevitably goes wrong. What do you do about it? Are you the person that jumps on the blame bandwagon, right? It's become so socially acceptable to kind of blame someone else or blame a system or blame a process. Are you the person that can own it, right? Seeking to take responsibility, not placing blame, and then gets to what matters most. How are we going to solve it and resolve it, right? So 
I think, yeah, if our worlds were super simple and we could show up every day and everything was easy, it would be just showing up and doing your job. Yet the challenges of today's world, we're probably going to find a problem before, you know, before we're an hour or two into our morning. And how do we take initiative at those points and take ownership and work to, to solve those challenges? I think that's the above and beyond that's, that's valuable and, and adds to credibility. Because this subject is is big, it's really big and kind of hard to get your head around. If someone's listening and saying, "Well, gee, this this all sounds good, but where where do you begin? How do you start? How do you start showing up the way you're talking, very specifically in everyday terms? Uh, maybe some examples would help. Of what what would I be doing differently that if I did what you're talking about that maybe I'm not doing now? You know, I think. The, the biggest accelerant to how we develop as a leader, and again, I think it's important. I'm thinking about leadership, not about being the boss or notoriety or power or prestige. Now, if those things are important to someone, I think that's great. Nothing wrong with being the boss or having power or maybe you know, having notoriety or prestige in your life. Yet I'm talking about your ability as a person to do two things really well. How well do you as an individual influence outcomes and inspire others, right? That's what I'm talking about. And, and every day in our lives, whether we're a parent, an employee, uh, involved in a volunteer organization, we have to influence and inspire to get along well with others and to get things done. And so I would say to someone that, hey, how do I elevate? How do I get better? How do I find more success? Self-awareness. What are your blind spots? And when I talk about blind spots, okay, it seems, okay, they're blind. I'm blind to them. How, how am I going to know what they are? But can you really critically look at yourself and, and look at yourself with an eye for what does everybody else know about me that I'm not quite seeing around my own behavior? Like a practical example, I think sometimes, you know, we have tempers. People get angry, right? And in a professional situation, let's bring it to the working world. You know, what's your go-to behavior when you're angry? Some people, it's scream and yell, raise your voice. Some people, it's withdrawal, right? We all have these behaviors that maybe are less than best when we're under stress or when we're angry. And so it's really taking a step back and saying, you know, is that behavior the most productive? What could I be doing better in those circumstances? And I think that's a key. If someone wants to develop their leadership skills, they have to really be open to certainly recognizing, well, what are my positive blind spots? What are the things that maybe little things I do each day that are of value to people? But then they also have to look at those blind spots that are self-defeating and maybe holding them back a bit too. So you have to be really up for a cold, hard look at what's working here and what's not working here. When you say inspire others, is that just doing you better or is that a deliberate act of, hey, you, come here, I'm going to inspire you? Not in those words, but but, you know, deliberately go out and, and attempt to inspire. Um, I don't think it is. And kind of a charismatic, you know, give a great speech. I'm going to, you know, rah-rah you to inspiration. I think it's more a subtle way. Do I, because of who I am, I have an impact on you that's positive? And sometimes, you know, at work, that's about uh, people getting work done. Uh, and sometimes in life, that's about, hey, look at that person. Look at their track record of success. Look at their character. Look at their actions in this moment. Uh, there's always an opportunity to inspire, and there's always an opportunity to influence. My guest is Courtney Lynch. She is co-author of the best-selling book, Spark, How to Lead Yourself and Others to Greater Success. And we're talking about leadership skills and developing your leadership skills.
So, Courtney, these other behaviors that you talk about, like act with intent and be of service and confidence, and I think confidence is probably one that people struggle with, because if you're not naturally self-confident, it's hard to fake it. You can't fake it, right? I think that's a really popular adage out there, right? Fake it till you make it, and I wholeheartedly disagree with it. Confidence comes from within. You can't fake it, but you can build it. And uh, I think that, you know, all my work with leaders through the years, I've been very focused on, well, the ones that were confident, what was it? Uh, And digging into the research and then working with folks to develop confidence, it's internal. So much of what you project outwardly is because of where you are internally. And so in the book, Inspark, we talk about uh, really several categories, right? Taking time to recognize your success, even if it's making it through a difficult Tuesday, right? We all have those pretty terrible days. And so being proud, again, internally, not telling everybody how great you are for making it through your uh, difficult Tuesday. Confidence can be borderline arrogance, but really the sincere understanding of your own beliefs and capabilities, positive self-talk, right? I mean, that was one that uh, I found a little trivial when I first heard about it, right? But really understanding what we're telling ourselves internally has a big difference on how we show up to others in the world. And then simple things. I mean, confidence is an emotion, right? Confidence isn't a skill, uh, but yet you still can practice bringing that emotion to the forefront when you need it the most. And some of that is understanding things that, you know, in Superman terms are kryptonite to your confidence. Things like fear, worry, insecurity, very commonly felt human emotions. Yet how often are you allowing them to get into your thinking and disperse and get rid of your confidence, right? When the moment you start to feel afraid, the moment you're paralyzed by worry, or the moment that you uh, start to evaluate yourself against others and you don't quite feel like you're stacking up, those are the moments that kill your confidence. And so really just by understanding the internal dynamics of confidence, it can translate to that stronger confidence projected outward. Well, that that sense of I think it's been called the imposter syndrome of, of, you know, I really feel like I don't deserve this. I'm, I don't know how I got here, but sooner or later, everybody's going to find me out for the fraud that I am. Uh, I think everybody feels that. And and that's pretty tough to deal with. I think everybody feels that. And I love it, Mike, that you're calling that out, right? That's the, that's kind of the secret behind the curtain. And that's the unique thing about my work, right? Is the, the privilege of it is I get to spend time with such amazing, talented leaders, right? I've had clients literally that were on the cover of Time magazine when I'm traveling to their client sites, yet I know them as people and I see that they're dealing with these very same issues. People are people. So yes, it's not um, dismissing those feelings that are so common. It's working through them. And that's, I think, where a little bit of my marine training comes into play because uh, they didn't teach us. I mean, think about courage, right? I mean, can courage really be taught? They didn't teach us to dismiss our fears. What they taught us to do was to face our fears and to move forward in spite of them, right? Acknowledging our own fallible nature as humans, right? We all get scared. We all make mistakes, right? These are common experiences for all of us as people. Yet what do you do to rise above when you're in those circumstances and lives depend on it? Now in the private sector, maybe it's not always life or death, but I think for professionals today, we take our careers so seriously and we're proud 
proud of them. And so understanding uh, how we can work through challenges within ourselves or work to lead and serve and, and uh, add value to other people more effectively, that's the essence of leadership development. So how do you, in some nuts and bolts, do that? Because I think when people hear things like work through your feelings and all this, they, their eyes glaze over. Yeah, I, I don't know what that means. Too, doesn't it? <laughs> It's recognize them, right? And sometimes it's name your fears if we're talking about confidence. If it's, we're talking about accountability, it's recognizing I am stuck in this storyline. I'm blaming everybody else, right? I mean, again, we blame credit card companies for getting us into debt. We blame fast food restaurants for making us fat. We blame our child's teacher for what our kid's not doing, right? I think practical nuts and bolts terms is we have to take ownership of what's going well in our lives and celebrate that and that contributes to confidence or what's not going well take ownership of that and figure out what are some steps to betterment yeah well and that's that hard look in the mirror you talked about that some people aren't willing to take Yeah, and I think everyone has the potential to be a better leader yet will and commitment have to be present to that process how, um, how, I don't know, not how easy is this, but I mean, is this like a lifelong journey or is this something you can work on for six months and, and really see the difference? I think you can work on it for six days or six minutes and see the difference as long as you're open to developing. Yet none of us will ever be the perfect leader. We can always be better, again, as much as we commit to being better. So it can be. And I think for most folks who are achieving the success that matters to them, they've made it a commitment to continuously develop. They're in a very much a growth mindset perspective. And then I think some people, and that doesn't mean they're bad or wrong, but are in more of a fixed mindset. And that's where they're staying. And if that works for them, I think that's great. I think people are drawn to leadership development, though, at times, when they get feedback from someone else that they need to develop their leadership skills, right? And like you've suggested, sometimes that can be a bit vague. Yet if something's not going according to plan or if something doesn't feel like it's working well, turning to developing yourself and developing your leadership skills can often uh, be a very uh, efficient and effective path to, to betterment. Well, that's a really interesting take on leadership. And as I said, as we started this discussion, that it's different than the usual corporate business boss, manager, leadership skills. This is more about how you know, p- people look inward to become better leaders. So thanks. Courtney Lynch has been my guest. She's author of the book, Spark, How to Lead Yourself and Others to Greater Success. And you'll find a link to the book on Amazon on the show notes page for this episode of the podcast. And all of our episodes are located at our website, somethingyoushouldknow.net. Thanks, Courtney. Hey, thank you. I appreciate your time. And thanks for uh, having us be a part of the show. Whether or not you're a, a great cook, or maybe you just boil water and make some pasta every once in a while, no matter what, I've got some expert tips for you that will make your cooking much better. They come from the website popsugar.com. First of all, protein, including eggs, protein hates heat. So if you've always ended up with overcooked and rubbery scrambled eggs, it's because you probably cooked them too quickly at too high a heat. Low and slow is the only way to get soft, custardy scrambled eggs. Next, almost every time you do make pasta, you should save about half a cup of the pasta water before pouring the rest down the drain. 
that salty, starchy liquid that the pasta cooked in becomes a crucial part to achieving a silky, cohesive sauce in most pasta dishes. Sizzling bacon on the stovetop typically results in splatters and often painful burns, and the tip is to roast bacon in the oven on a cookie sheet lined with foil so that the bacon cooks evenly and the cleanup is effortless. You'll never buy ground beef again once you start making burgers from sirloin tips rather than ground chuck. The flavor and the texture are far superior to plain old store-bought ground beef. And finally, and I love this one, and it's so, it's so true, any chocolate chip cookie is better with salt on it. When you take the cookies out of the oven, sprinkle them with just a little good quality flake salt, preferably, you know, big flake salt like kosher salt, and it completely transforms the flavor of the chocolate chip cookies. And that is something you should know. And that is our podcast today. You can subscribe to this podcast for free, and that way the episodes uh, get delivered right to whatever device you listen on. Just click the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.